Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. So insisted 19th century philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson in a famous essay called Self-Reliance. Emerson would have you believe that the key to a successful life, to a fulfilling life of meaning and joy, is to fully trust your own instincts, desires, capacities, and needs, and to follow those internal instincts at all costs, no matter what the world around you would say. It's easy to see the, the current day echoes, reverberations of Emerson's transcendentalist philosophy in our culture's insistence on defining uh, reality and identity for ourselves. And it seems that perhaps the church in Laodicea, the letter that we'll read today, lived by something similar to this motto. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, Jesus addresses a church that suffers from a delusional self-confidence, a church that has placed a high degree of trust in themselves, but whose self-assessment bears little resemblance to the reality that the all-seeing eye of King Jesus observes. A few things to know about the city of Laodicea will prove relevant to the letter uh, before we read it. Laodicea was a proud city and a wealthy city. First thing to know about the city of Laodicea is that it was rich, rich with material resources. So rich, in fact, that there had been a huge earthquake there in the year AD 60, 60. And when Rome had offered financial aid to help reconstruct the city, the leaders of the city turned it down. We don't need your help. We have everything we need to rebuild the city on our own, right? They were so wealthy and proud of that wealth that they would not even receive assistance from the Roman government in rebuilding their city. The city gained its riches from a few prominent industries there. One was medicine. There was a, a, a successful medical uh, industry there, and they were especially known for, uh, for an eye ointment, the creation of an eye ointment that was used in, in treating various eye problems. Something called Phrygian powder was discovered there in Laodicea and used in the creation of this salve, this ointment that would treat eye problems. That was clearly one source of the city's wealth. Another source of the city's wealth was its clothing industry. They were apparently known especially for uh, rare black wool garments. They had these black sheep and would, would make uh, the, the, these woolen garments from this black wool and it was unusual and, so, and highly sought after and thus they earned lots of money in the making and selling of these black clothes. So a rich city, a city uh, filled with industry and, and, and prominence and proud of those realities. Now, there's one thing that Laodicea was known for that's a little bit less glamorous. Laodicea was known for contaminated water. The, the city was located far enough away from any source of clean water that it was difficult 
to, to have a supply of drinkable, usable water in the city. It was several miles away from uh, these hot springs in Hierapolis, which were used for medicinal purposes. It was hot and therefore sort of antibacterial. And so the, it, this hot water was used in various, in various medical ways, but they were far enough away from these hot springs that by the time the water traveled through an aqueduct and arrived at the city, it had lost its warmth. It had settled into a, a tepid, lukewarm condition. And likewise, they were far enough away, about five miles from the city of Colossae, which was an important supply of cold water. There was cold, fresh, clean water in Colossae, but again, by the time the water was carried from Colossae back to the town of Laodicea, the water had warmed to a room temperature. And so it was difficult for them to find water for use in for drinking and bathing and cooking and all the various things that people use water for on a daily basis. I think you'll find these details about the city of Laodicea bear considerable relevance to the church's situation and these exhortations that Christ will make to them. So let me read for you verses 14 through 22 of Revelation 3, and then we'll consider what the, the word of the Lord is, not just to them, but to us. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ comes to this proud, self-sufficient church as the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. To call himself the Amen is to call himself the true one. The word Amen has to do with truthfulness, with verity. We use it at the end of prayers because we're basically saying, Lord, make this true, right? Let this become reality. And so Amen, Amen is truth. So when he says, I am the Amen, the words of the Amen, he's pointing to his truthfulness. In fact, he said of himself in John 14, 6, famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself embodies truth, and so he comes to them as the true one, with words of truth, 
He calls himself the faithful and true witness. That refers in the immediate context back to chapter 1, verse 5. As John opened this letter and granted grace, offered grace to his readers from God the Father and the Spirit and the Son, he said of Jesus Christ that he was the faithful witness. So in contrast to the languishing witness, the failed witness of this church, Christ is a true witness. Christ bears true and authentic witness to God and to his word and to his coming kingdom, the faithful and true witness. And again, as the beginning of creation, meaning he is the source of life and being. We certainly should not take from this phrase that he's the beginning of creation that he was somehow a created being, like Jesus was the first of the created beings. We know that's not the case. The rest of the Bible plainly emphasizes and teaches, and indeed Revelation teaches, that Jesus, as the Son of God, is eternal with God the Father. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Skipping down a few verses, the Word became flesh dwelt among us. So the word is clearly Jesus Christ. So we know that Jesus is before creation. Jesus is an eternal being. So to say that he's the beginning of creation is to say that he is the, the first fruits, if you will, the firstborn among uh, his people. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of God and the firstborn of all creation. And we spoke recently from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about how Christ's resurrection became the first fruits of our resurrection. That is, in Christ and his resurrection from the dead and his life, the rest of his people who are redeemed, and indeed the rest of creation as it becomes redeemed, uh, find its source in him. So he reminds them, I have the truth. I bear faithful witness to God and his word and his kingdom, and I am the very source of life. And those things are very important as he challenges the Laodicean church in several ways and offers them the only solution, namely himself. So we'll come down to that in a few minutes. So he comes to them as the amen, the authentic witness, and the firstborn of creation, the beginning of creation. And he has for this church, and if we're listening in, for any church, challenges and comforts for a self-sufficient church. Christ's words to a self-sufficient church. Here's the first one. I am repulsed by your complacency. It's the first thing Jesus says to a self-sufficient church. I am repulsed by your complacency. It's sobering to consider the, the, the heart, the mind, the, 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 the feeling of, of Christ to a church that is, as he says, lukewarm. Again, remember the, the, the situation of the city of Laodicea with its water supply. If it had hot water, that would be good. If it had cold water, that would be good in a different way, but it has neither because of its location and the difficulty of getting water there. And so it's not as though hot is good and cold is bad. Sometimes we read these verses and we think hot must mean like sort of on fire for Jesus and cold must mean hostile toward Jesus. And I don't think that's what he means here. I think hot would be good and cold would be good, which is why he says, would that you were either hot or cold, like either one of those is good. The hot water has, has healing 
agents and, and capacities. And cold water has, has comforting and refreshing capacities. You have neither. As a witness to Jesus Christ in this world, this church has neither healing properties or comforting properties. Everything about the church's witness is missing. It is lukewarm. He's saying here, you are tepid. You are indifferent. You are apathetic toward me. And so they had lost everything that would be either healing or comforting that they might offer the world around them. The church's lampstand is not burning brightly because they are complacent in their faith, in their relationship to the Lord. And Jesus is very clear about how he feels about this, isn't he? Because you are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not something you want to hear Jesus say. I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is disgusted by this, I think. Here's a church that bears his name, that claims to have the, the gospel, that is supposed to be bearing witness to Christ and his kingdom, and yet they've lost everything that makes them uh, relevant to the world around them because they don't care about Jesus anymore. And he's disgusted by this. Eugene Peterson has a, a, a translation, really kind of a paraphrase more of the Bible called The Message. It was all the rage about 25 years ago. Um, but he, here's, how he, here's how Eugene Peterson translated this verse. He says, you're stale, you're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. <laughs> that is, that's the message translation uh, of this verse. And I think it gets something right. I think that the attitude, that the taste in Jesus's mouth when he considers this church and its self-sufficiency and its lack of interest in Jesus and the things of his spirit make him want to spit them out, like spit them out of his mouth. Like you took a drink of something and it wasn't what you expected. So you spit it out. That's how Jesus responds here. And I think the complacency that they have seems clearly tied to their wealth, right? To their sort of status in the world. The world around them thinks that they're all that. Man, look at all the money they have. Look at all of the industry and resources, the, the, to the medical technology uh, and the things that they are producing. And so they get puffed up and they get full of themselves and they think you don't have any need for Jesus, which is actually what comes very next. So the first thing that Jesus says to them is, I am repulsed by your complacency. The second thing he says to them is this, you think too highly of yourselves. You think too highly of yourselves. You can see that in verse 17. So here, here's how the church views themselves. You say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. So just like the city, well, we live in a wealthy city. Look at us. We're a wealthy church. We have all of these resources that we need. We are rich. We have prospered, meaning what we have is, is good. They probably even think we've been blessed by God. Look at all the great things we have. Look at all the people coming. Look at all the baptisms, decisions. Look at all the money we send to missions, whatever it is. All the ways that churches may sort of uh, puff themselves up and check off boxes of their resume. They think we've prospered. The Lord has blessed us. In fact, we don't need anything. 
We have everything that we need. They are a self-satisfied, self-sufficient church. But that's not how Jesus views the church, is it? He says, you say, I'm rich, I'm prospered, I'm in need of nothing. But you don't realize that actually you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You don't have what you think you have. You may have these material riches. You may have this worldly prosperity. Someone in the world may look at you and think, wow, that's a successful organization. But you don't have the things that I value. The things that indeed come only from me. We sing a song sometimes called God of Grace and God of Glory. And there's a line in it that, that says uh, that we, it, as a warning, that we not be rich in things and poor in soul. And that describes this church. They're rich in things. They're materially prosperous. They're wealthy, they're strong, probably have big, a big church, lots of numbers. Uh, but in soul, they're impoverished. In fact, they're the opposite of the church at Smyrna. In chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus had said to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Because he had encouraging words for Smyrna about how in the face of persecution and opposition, they had been faithful. And they had trusted Christ and they had proclaimed his gospel faithfully. And so, yes, you're poor. You don't have much in the way of worldly material resources, but you are spiritually rich. They ought to see us the opposite of that. You've got all these worldly resources, but spiritually you are poor. You are destitute. And you don't even know it. You're poor and blind and naked and you have no idea. There's two dangers for us that Laodicea exemplifies. And the first and most obvious one is is the danger of spiritual self-reliance, the danger of spiritual pride. Paul exhorts his readers in Romans 12, verse 3, let no one think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So there's something to be said. There's a sort of spiritual discipline of self-awareness and and self-assessment and honesty about what we have and what we don't have and where we're strong and where we're weak and where we're growing and where we really need to grow. There's, there's something uh, good and godly about even the awareness of, of what we have and don't have. And this church doesn't have it. They're blind to their poverty and their nakedness and their spiritual blindness. When we think that we've arrived, right, we need no help, then we're in trouble. When we begin to think, you know, I don't really need uh, other Christians to speak into my life? Uh, or we think, you know, I, I, I know the Bible pretty well. I don't really need to spend time uh, with it, reading it, letting it uh, speak into my heart. Or, you know, I, I have, I'm too busy to, to really pray. I know that God's with me. It's going to be okay. Um, when we start to think that we don't need what God has to offer, then we're in danger. And it's, it's kind of funny that this... This is a common topic. The question of self-sufficiency as a church is a common topic among church planters. And in the church planting world, of course, as a church plant, we're largely dependent on outside resources, right? So donors and and people who give money to help keep the ministry going. Uh, And people often ask the question, when will your church become self-sufficient? And of course, what they mean by that is, 
what sort of progress is the church making toward being able to set, sort of pay its own bills, right, with, with money that comes in from the church instead of from the outside. But the language that is often used in that context of, of, of when will your church become self-sufficient is a, is a bit ironic and perhaps troubling. It's not what people mean, of course, but I want to say I hope we never become self-sufficient. I hope we never become a church that thinks we don't need the Lord. We don't need grace for every day of our existence, right? If we arrive at a place where we're like, all right, all our bills are paid, we got money in the bank, we got people coming, we got people baptized, we're good to go, we don't need anything, we're in danger. Right? A church needs to remain in a place of dependence upon the Lord, recognizing our need of Him. So there's the danger of spiritual self-reliance. And the other danger that I think is reflected here in Laodicea is this is the spiritual danger of wealth. And I don't mean to imply in a real black and white blanket way that, that being wealthy is bad, that being rich is necessarily evil. You know, some people like to misquote a verse in the Bible and they say the, the love of or, or money is the root of all evil. That's what people say. The Bible says money is the root of all evil. Well, no. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Money is not evil. Money itself is a tool. Money is, is a resource given by God to be stewarded. And it can be stewarded well, and it can be stewarded poorly. Nevertheless, there is a, an inherent danger, a, a, a pitfall, that is uh, more uh, likely for those who have much material wealth. Jesus spends a good bit of time talking about it. In Matthew 19, in fact, uh, my boys and I were just reading this story the other day in our, uh, our Bible time together. And there's a story of this rich young man who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And, uh, and he says, well, I've kept all these since my youth. Right? I'm doing good. I don't need anything. Right? I've kept the commands. And so Jesus, recognizing that there's something not quite right in his heart and his self-assessment, says, okay, well, one thing you do lack. Take all of your possessions and sell them and then give all that money to the poor, and then come follow me. And he's not willing to do that. It says the young man went away sad because he had great possessions. So he was rich in things, but poor in soul. He was not willing to, to relinquish the grip on his worldly possessions because, uh, because they were too important to him. They were too valuable to him. He was not willing to give up on that for the sake of following Christ and, uh, and, and his kingdom. And then he has, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples right after that, where he says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Of course, that surprises the disciples. Well, if he can't make it, who could possibly be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, of course, he's not saying there, if you're rich, you can't be saved. Right? There's no rich people in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. But he is pointing out that there is an inherent spiritual danger to wealth, to riches. Paul exhorts Timothy, young pastor that he trained, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is to be proud, to think highly of themselves, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, 
so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, he doesn't say, tell rich people they have to get rid of all their money because they can't be rich and get into the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. What he says is, there's some particular warnings that rich people need, right? If you're rich in the world, rich in resources, there's a danger to trust in your own riches. There's a danger, as Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. There's a danger for my heart to be bound up in the things of earth because I got a lot of my stuff here. So this is what I care most about. So the dangers of spiritual self-reliance and the dangers of, of, of wealth and the, the sort of self-sufficiency that they lead to. May we plead with the Spirit of God to fill us with affection for Jesus Christ and a zeal for good works. That's what he calls them to. We need a steady stream of gospel reminders to avoid growing stale and stagnant in our relationship with Jesus and our efforts for his kingdom. So Jesus says to a self-sufficient church, I am repulsed by your complacency. You think too highly of yourselves. And then third, he tells them this, you need what only I can give you. You need what only I can give you. In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. Pause right there. I counsel you to buy from me. He is the source. Remember, he's the beginning of God's creation, the firstborn uh, from the dead. So he is the source of life and being and spiritual wealth. And so he calls them to buy from him. I have what you need. You think you've got all this stuff. You think you're, you're good to go and you don't need any help. But what you really need comes only from me. And it's a bit ironic. It's an ironic uh, use of, of this, of, of the word buy, right? Buy from me because their material wealth will do them precisely zero good in terms of their spiritual health. You don't have what you need based on material wealth. And he's just told them that they're unaware of their spiritual poverty, right? You are poor. And now he counsels them to buy stuff from himself. Buy spiritual goods from him. And this really is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? It is the offer to receive spiritual goods, spiritual life, spiritual hope from him at no price. The bill is on him. We started our worship service today with a call to worship from Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the, the gospel invitation. All of the costs of spiritual life and resurrection and participation in the kingdom of God were paid by Jesus in his sinless life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. All of it is on him. And so he says, I counsel you to come and buy from me. And he tells them to buy three things. Here are the spiritual resources that you need from Christ. Number one, gold refined by fire. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He's not speaking literally about gold. He's speaking of spiritual riches, right? Because they're already materially rich. But when he speaks of gold being refined by fire, he's speaking of purity. He's speaking of the purifying, cleansing power of Christ and the Spirit of God. You should come to me for cleansing. You should come to me for forgiveness and, and purifying that you may have spiritual riches, right? That you may have fullness in Christ, that you may recognize your dependence on 
me on the Lord Jesus. That's what he's saying here. I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire. That is to come to me for true spiritual riches, for purity, for cleansing. And then to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, this is interesting in light of the black wool garments that Laodicea was known for. So there's a contrast that the readers would have immediately understood. Yeah, you're known for this black garment. What you need is a white garment from me. Again, I think representing purity. I think speaking of the, the newness of life that comes from Christ, the cleansing from sin, that indeed would cover their shame, right? That the shame of your nakedness might not be seen. So as he said that you're, uh, you're poor, he says, now come to me for gold refined by fire. As he said to them, you're naked. And he says, come to me for, for white garments, by, by clothing to, to cover your shame. And then finally, he, he calls them to buy salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And again, thinking of the medical industry and the eye ointment that Laodicea was known for, he takes something that they know immediately and in fact, a source of their pride, and says, you need spiritual ointment, right? You think you've got it all together, but you have no idea. You don't even know what you need. You think you have everything, but what you need is only from me. So come to me and buy spiritual ointment, eye ointment to cure your spiritual blindness. So these things that he counsels them to buy are clearly related to exactly to what Jesus identified as their situation. You think you're rich and that you have prospered and you need nothing. In truth, you're poor and you're naked and you're blind. So come to me and buy spiritual riches, gold, buy white garments of purity and cleansing, buy salve for your eyes that you might have your spiritual blindness cured, that you could see what I see. So church, be assured, all that you need, you have in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual resource is yours in Christ. There's not some new key to unlock some new door that will discover, oh, here's the secret to life. No, you have Christ and in him you have all that you will ever need. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell this church. What you need is me. What you need is what I only can give you. We sang a song at the beginning of our service today. I just want to read to you the first verse. How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood our ransom and defense. His glory our reward. The sum of all created things is worthless in compare. For our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. We have everything in Jesus Christ that we will ever need. The next thing he says to them, and it's a bit surprising given the sort of negative tone and the, the chastisement that Christ has offered to the church so far, it's, it's a little bit of a surprising word, but it's full of comfort. And it's this, I love you, and it's not too late. I love you, and it's not too late. In verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, right? Those whom I love, I discipline and reprove. Things aren't good in Laodicea. This church is a mess. This church is a, is a, a bundle of spiritual pride and self 
reliance and self-sufficiency and they've forgotten their need for Christ and they don't really have very much interest in Jesus, it appears. But nevertheless, I love you. I'm disciplining you. I'm giving you these hard words because you're my children, right? Hebrews chapter 12 paints this poignantly. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, when I read this passage. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline isn't fun. Discipline doesn't feel good, but it yields good fruit, right? It yields the fruit of righteousness. And so Jesus has this message for this church. Listen, the reason I'm so hard on you, the reason I have this hard word of judgment about your complacency and about wanting to spit you out of my mouth, and telling you that you're blind and poor and naked and pitiable. The reason I say these things is because I love you. And this is discipline for your good. And in this case, the good that would come from this this discipline would be the good of repentance. And so the very next thing he says is, therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn around, turn away. And as long as he gives this call, as long as there's this warning to repent and turn back, it's not too late. In God's kindness, there's there's an opportunity to respond to the warning, to respond to his exhortation. Come back to me. I have what you need. I alone have what you need. Leave your confidence in the flesh and in money and in the status in the world and come to me. It's not too late. Repent. Be zealous. And repent. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful invitation. A picture of intimacy, a picture of, of relationship, of friendship. We're sharing a meal together. And how often this, this word, this, this message, this verse is used in sort of evangelistic appeals, right? As though Jesus is standing outside the door of an unbeliever's heart and asking to be invited in. I've heard many sort of altar calls, you know, that, that center on this verse. He's knocking. If you'll open the door, he'll come in. And the tragic irony is that this verse in context is actually spoken to a church. It's, a, it's the words of Jesus to people who are supposed to be Christians. They profess themselves to be followers of Jesus, and it's as though they've shut him out. He's on the outside of this church. You guys bear my name. You say you're worshiping me, but here I am outside, knocking on the door. Will you guys let me back in? This church has nothing to do with me right now. It's a, it's, it sounds like a warm invitation, and it is a warm invitation, but in the context, it's, it's a word of, of indictment, of chastisement. You've left me out of your church. You're so self-sufficient. You don't think you need me. 
This church has become so self-reliant, so out of step with their identity and mission as a church, Jesus has been left outside, knocking at the door. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful invitation. If you'll respond, if you'll hear the words of the Lord by the Spirit and open the door, he'll come back, right? It's like he's telling this church, it's not too late. I'll come back to you. I'll fellowship with you. I'll restore what's been lost, but you have to respond. You have to invite the Lord back into your, your life as a church. Friends, heed the words of the Lord. If he is standing at the door of your heart trying to get your attention, whether as a believer who's veered off the course of Christ's purpose for your life or as a non-believer, someone who, who's never trusted in, in Christ, it's not too late to respond when he's knocking. I love you and it's not too late. And the last thing, the last word that he has for the self-sufficient church is this. If you endure in faith, you will reign with me in the kingdom. You will reign with me in the kingdom. See that in verse 21. The one who conquers, that is the one who perseveres in faith, continues faithfully to the end. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who faithfully endures, the one who invites Jesus back into the life of the church, right? And depends on him and his grace and not our own resources and, and materials, will follow the same path that Jesus himself followed. Jesus suffered. Jesus conquered. Jesus was exalted. That's the path that he follows in Philippians 2, very well-known passage. He was humbled to the point of death, and therefore God has exalted him, given the name of every name, right? And so now he's on the throne, sitting on the throne uh, with his father. And so Jesus says, the same thing will be true of you. If you'll endure to the end, if you conquer, if you'll trust me, if you'll stay faithful to me, just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, so you will conquer and sit down with me mine. We share with Jesus in the reign of his kingdom. In a spiritual sense, that's already the reality for Christians. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. We've been raised up and seated with him. So there is a sense in which spiritually speaking, we are sharing in his reign, but there's a day coming. There's a kingdom coming when we will be with him and will share in the reign of the kingdom. It's similar to the promise he gave to the church of Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. He said there, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The very same idea in Revelation 22, 5, in the sort of final concluding vision of the eternal uh, state, uh, John envisions the saints of God reigning forever and ever. So there's an aspect of, of life in the kingdom that is the people of God judging the world, right? Jesus said that uh, to his disciples in Luke chapter 22 as well, in a little bit more detail as they were sort of arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And sometimes you wonder, why doesn't Jesus go, you knuckleheads, like I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. But nevertheless, in his mercy, in his kindness, here is what he says as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He gives them a statement about uh, those who are the greatest being those who 
our servants, right? The least will be the greatest, etc. And then he says this, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, so the people of God will be judges in the kingdom of God. That's, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. So it's, it's mysterious. We don't know exactly what that looks like or how, what that means in every respect, but it's a consistent message of Jesus. It's a consistent promise of the gospel. For the one who trusts in Christ and is faithful to the end, we will share in the rule of the eternal kingdom along with the Lord Jesus, which is just amazingly generous. Jesus earned that. Right? Jesus, by his very nature, uh, has what it takes to be king and ruler. And he earned, in a sense, that position of exaltation through his life and death and resurrection. God bestowed on him the name above every name. And yet he decides to share that with us. To share the spoils, as it were, with his people. So these are hard words for a self-sufficient church. A church that feels like it no longer needs Jesus. We have everything that we need. I'm repulsed by his complacency. You think too highly of yourselves. You need what only I can give you. I love you, and it's not too late. And if you endure in faith, you will reign with me in the kingdom. And this message, like the six that came before it, was intended not just for the church in Laodicea, but for all the churches of Jesus in that generation. And not just for that generation, but for all Christ's people throughout the ages. And if we're listening to the voice of the Spirit calling to us through these seven messages in Revelation 2 and 3, we will hear Christ our King comforting, correcting, and exhorting us. Don't forget to keep the love of God and love of neighbor at the heart of the church's life and ministry. And doctrinal purity must be grounded in love. Don't be afraid of hardship and persecution on account of Christ's name. Trust his grace and be faithful to him even unto death. Don't put up with false teaching. Don't make compromises with the world. Give the, keep the true gospel front and center and don't stray from the path of spiritual fidelity and personal holiness. Don't be discouraged by your exclusion from the world, your apparent lack of power and influence, or your humble stature. Christ is alive in you, present with you, and empowering you for life and mission. And don't grow lazy and complacent in your faith. Stay attuned to God's word. Diligently bear witness to Christ in the homes, neighborhoods, and workplaces where God has placed you. And the ones who conquer, the ones who endure in faith to the end, hear his precious promises. You will eat of the tree of life in paradise. You will not be harmed by the second death, but receive the crown of life. You will receive the bread of life and entrance into the marriage feast of the Lamb. You will enjoy the personal presence of Jesus himself for eternity. Your name will be forever written in the Lamb's book of life, and Christ will confess you before his Father. 
You will be members of God's household, sealed with God's name, and citizens of God's city, where no one can kick you out. And you will sit with Jesus on his throne in the eternal kingdom. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together.